0: First of all, these artists that I admired took it so seriously, and second of all, once you start looking at a print, of course, it's endlessly interesting.
1: Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast, and they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page with tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and every little bit goes to help us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You also get thank yous like exclusive merch and access to our bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschek. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and just general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and sign up today. If you want to save a little cash and still support the podcast, you can do it now with a yearly subscription and save 15% off that tier price. Printmaking forever. Shun the non believers. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know these products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like the charming and talented friend of the pod, Miles Calvert, Miles is an assistant professor of fine arts at Winthrop University who encourages experimentation and collaboration in his demos, sharing his expertise in screen printing, relief printing, woodblock, monoprint, lithography, and digital. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. In addition to their high-quality Japanese carving tools, McLean's has resources, books, DVDs, and information on how to use everything you need to make a woodblock, from barrens and blocks to paper and whetstones. So head on over to McLean's at imcleans.com or follow the link in the show notes and learn something new today. My guest this week is Anne Coffin, founder of the International Print Center of New York. We'll talk about coming to printmaking through collecting, the effects of the September 11th attacks on the art scene of New York and beyond, the democratization of applying through shows through the internet, the foundations of starting a solid not-for-profit, and looking back over the center's 20-year history of print advocacy. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to heart New York with Anne Coffin.
0: Hi Anne, how's it going? Going really well. Really great to hear your voice, Miranda. Oh and to have a talk.
1: I am very much looking forward to our talk. Yes. Thank you for joining me. And I'm glad we could get all of our international scheduling worked out too. That's always a bit of an adventure, but we did it. Yeah. <laughs> so don't even tell
0: me what time it is in Thailand. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's only 8 p.m. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, before we get into my questions I have for you, would you mind introducing yourself just a little bit? And I always ask my guests to say who you are, where you are, and what you do.
0: Okay, happy to. I'm Anne Coffin. I'm at the moment in Cornwall, Connecticut, a couple of hours uh, north of New York City, where I spend many weekends and wrote out the pandemic. I'm missing New York intensely. Mm. (laughs) But we have a lot of artists working around here and a lot of uh, writers, a lot of interesting people. So, And it's a beautiful place, so it's it's great to be here. I'm also looking forward to the fall and getting back to New York and seeing many, many art shows and catching up on what I missed during the pandemic. Um, and what I do here in my basic retirement from IPCNY I've been spending a lot of time in in this rural, beautiful place at the little local library, putting up shows of local artists, which has been sort of six or eight a year, which has been very exciting. To in a way, what in a way it aligns perfectly with what I was trying to do at the Print Center in, in starting it because it, um, it gives uh, local artists a chance to show their work, um, often very early on in their careers, sometimes very late in their careers after their galleries of closed or moved yeah. on. Or, so it's been very exciting. And um, it's of course, I always look for prints, but there's a lot else going on here, a lot of painting and plein air and portraits and all sorts of things. So... That's been exciting. And I do the events here. And in, in back in New York, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of nonprofits. Mm. Um, so landmark, preservation, things like that. And I'm still on the board of IPCNY, which I love being involved with still and seeing it grow. And um, perhaps you wanted me to introduce myself basically by saying that I was the founder <laughs> of the Print <Natural laughs> Center in New York. Um, but left three years ago. I was there for 16, 17 years um putting it in in place and on the map and um developing the programs and um tr- finding the trustees which is really important in a nonprofit mm-hmm. institution mm-hmm. to have fantastic trustees representing a range of talents and and knowledge and um I stayed with it till till I retired about 3 4 years ago and um I'm still very involved, which is grat- very gratifying. It's growing very nicely yes. under mm-hmm. the leadership of Judy Hecker, who I think you interviewed once before.
1: Yes, yeah, she was yeah. wonderful.
0: Yeah, she's great. Oh, so.
1: oh, beautiful. I think that's 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 perfect. Because yeah, because I realized in my in my question, that it's it's what you do, you know, which is sort of in the present tense. But then also, we're meeting today a lot of because of what you did, which was of course yeah. f- found IPCNY. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I grew up in the
0: suburbs of New York, um, in New Jersey, in a community very near the beach. I spent a lot of time in a sailboat mm. <laughs> and normal, healthy childhood. And didn't I, I did go occasionally into the city, but mostly to see um, theater and really didn't begin to pay much attention to art until I got to college and, of course, took Art 1-1. Art one, one. Everyone takes Art 1-1 one, one and got hooked and went to Europe in the summer and then started going down to the city occasionally toward the end of my college years and found myself in some print galleries. I think it was over Pearl Gallery on Madison Avenue in the 70s, and there was a print gallery there. Um, I'm not sure who it was. It was a long time ago. Um But the low 70s, sorry, it was like 70, maybe Fifth Street or something like that. There were a couple of galleries along there. Uh, The gallery community was much smaller then, of course, than it is now. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at prints. And um, then when I moved to New York after college, I worked very near um, the Museum of Modern Art. I worked for a magazine, um, which, of course, was printed. So (laughs) printing was that kind of print. Upset commercial printing was part of my life at that point, but then I started going to MoMA like two or three days a week at lunchtime, and and went on weekends. We were going to galleries on weekends, and um, at that point there were there were print galleries. Well, there was Leo Castelli. We went there, and there was uh, Sylvan Cole at Associated American Artists. I think I went there every single Saturday, mm-hmm. but during the week I got involved at the museum as a volunteer um, on the junior council, which um, basically, was a, it was very young. The museum was very young then, and this was in the 60s, and um, the junior council got involved very directly in producing Christmas cards and producing the postcards and producing the annual calendar and even a couple of books because the museum staff was very small then and not as professionalized. It was much less formal. Mm. Um, so I got into the print department and worked, very, worked under uh, Reva Castleman, who was the chief curator there. It was amazing for somebody who was trying to learn about prints to actually be able to uh, be in that department and see what went on there um, and, and go through the card catalogs. And people would pull things out for me to see, to recommend to my you know, my little committee for mm. uh, publication for the museum. So. I got really interested in prints, and then coincidentally, um, besides going to every resource I could find in New York, we had friends that were collecting. We had begun collecting by then, but these friends had bigger resources than we did, and we went out. She, they introduced us to you uh, to U uh, L A E to Tanya Grossman. Mm-hmm. So we went out there in Long Island a couple of times and bought a Rauschenberg visitation number two, in case you want to know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> Still have it's one of my very favorite prints. Oh, wonderful! Print. Uh, yeah, they bought they bought a Jasper Johns coat hanger. They bought a Fritz Glarner, Larry Rivers. I mean, and then we went to um, California one time. We went out to Crown Point Press, which was then in Oakland. But this was just around the time when printmaking was just exploding in in America. Really a a printmaking renaissance across the country. Um, Crown Point Press was founded. Um, June Wayne founded Tamarind. then, and um, of course ULAE in New York, and Gemini in Los Angeles, and later on uh, Ken Tyler, Tyler Graphics, there is so much activity. It was really a great time to get to sort of dive in and learn about printmaking. And all of the great artists were, of course, making prints. And so one learned right away that it was a primary medium and that these artists totally dedicated to their printmaking, along with their painting and our sculpture, whatever it was, Oldenburg, for example. It was just great. So that's how I got really involved. Um, and I continued working for the magazine for for ten years, and then we moved to England where coincidentally there, we had friends that were that had started Editions Electo. Mm. And uh, which was started, I guess, the late 50s, but we didn't get there till the 70s, but it was still going strong. And they were publishing all kinds of wonderful people, Palazzi and Hockney and every, you know, all sorts of wonderful, not only English, but some American artists. So I spent a lot of time around that. It was just very happenstantial the way yeah. I got so done on all this. Yeah. As so many
1: things are in life. Absolutely. But I mean, it, it sounds like... You know, you got that exposure to art, right, through the through college in the way that I think a lot of people do. But mm-hmm. then you were kind of exposed to print, but also sort of sought it out. So what do you think was it about printmaking that really lit the spark for you?
0: Well, I think it was, first of all, that these artists that I admired took it so seriously. Mm. And second of all, once you start looking at a print, of course, it's endlessly interesting when you, I mean, I took a a very basic course from um, Victor D'Amico at MoMA, um, Saturday mornings or whatever it was, nighttime. And, you know, once you've even made one print, you understand the sort of the reverse, the Layering, all of that, and then you you look at it in a in a more sophisticated way, and it's just endlessly interesting. And I love all the experimentation that goes on, and the incorporation of new techniques, and the collaboration, and the layering. And I just got very interested. Um, I, I think for that reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that printmaking is one of those media that it really is like a an onion, you know. Or- I don't even know yeah. that's that's not even like as as delicate or interesting enough of a metaphor but for lack of a better one like the the onion where it's just you 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 understand the different media and then you understand the nuances within those media and then you understand the way people break the rules of the different media in a way that it really just keeps giving and, and changing. And if you're at all sort of technically minded or you like a challenge or you like a puzzle or you like sort of thinking in steps, printmaking just really lights up all those parts of the brain that, that get excited, I think.
0: That's absolutely right. The other thing that's so wonderful about it is the dedication of the specialists, you know, the specialists, the etcher and the um, lithographer and these people that work on other people's projects, mm. the, print, the um, master printers and how they dedicate themselves To to uh, creating someone else's work, it's I love that. I mean, I love the and and the idea that they work together so closely, um, and that you know you might have an etching. That then has a, a another a ground or something, and then has to be flat bedded across town. This happened in, the, in the, often early on, and uh, when the uh, studios were smaller, and they would collaborate on a work, and maybe a silkscreen process um, would would go into a work that started as an etching. It was really interesting to to see that and how respectful they were of the artists and of each other's talents and oh, expertise. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And then, so when did the sort of first seeds of IPCNY get planted. When did you start to think about maybe building a center for printmaking might be something you were interested in?
0: Well, that was sort of the early nineties, I guess, because we had come back from London and I was freelance writing and I wrote about I wrote about downtown print shops for a little magazine called Downtown. Hmm. published by the uh, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. So I'd been all around um, looking at these various print shops. And then, then I got sidetracked for a while from freelance writing. I went to work for the Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies in Florence, Villa Itati, um, which was lucky. I mean, it was really completely out of my sphere, but I liked the idea of academia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of diving into that again and I liked the idea of Florence and Italy and of
1: course um, yeah
0: <laughs> so I did that for six or seven years still freelancing a little bit but it gave me what it gave me that I hadn't realized when I mean, you look back over your life and see how it all adds up so neatly it gave me professional administrative experience that professional arts administration that I hadn't had what i had was arts administration as a volunteer because I'd been head of a couple of nonprofits in New York. So I understood what went into running a nonprofit, mm. but I'd never done it. And at Villa Itati, I had more hands on um, professional uh, admin experience. So, but then at a certain point, I, I, New York was kind of in the doldrums, and I didn't like the idea of putting my energy into something that was going on on the other side of the ocean. Mm. <laughs> supported supported, owned by a very rich university. I mean, it just didn't feel quite right anymore. Um, And I wanted to, because I love New York, I wanted to do something that would help New York kind of bounced back. And the artist community then was a bit in the doldrums too. I mean, it was, the rents had gone up. It was hard for artists to keep their studio space. And I've always felt that great cities need a really active artist community Mm because I think their sort of energy and the new ideas and um, the commitment to, to ongoing change and growth and they just are such a jump start to to a city. And we had always had lots of young artists coming to New York, but it was harder for them to get their work out and harder to live here. And so I felt that if I could do something that increased exhibition opportunities that would pour some income back to these people, that it would... Um, helped to revitalize the art scene in New York. And so I started talking to people. Um, I just talked to everyone, obviously, I mostly knew print people, but I talked to everybody and finally got this. I talked to publishers and and dealers and artists and um, philanthropists and whom I knew a lot of from my work in the nonprofit world. I just talked to lots of people, big wide range, probably, I don't know, 75 people maybe. And finally, it kind of looked like the right way to go was to start an exhibition space for prints. I spent a lot of time at that point talking to uh, Brooke Alexander, who was very kind. About once a month, I'd go talk to him. Uh, I'm sure everybody on your podcast knows who he is. (laughs) And also Peter Blum, who was the print dealers uh, down in Soho at that point. And um, I talked to Sylvan Cole, Associated American Artist. I talked to Bill Lieberman at the Met. I talked to Reva Castleman at the Museum of Modern Art. I talked to all sorts of people. And the idea emerged. I mean, it became obvious that there was a lot of support, um, a lot of support for this idea of starting a center where uh, artists could exhibit, where what the public could see prints and artists could exhibit them, because there was really, we needed a connecting point between the work that was being made and the people who wanted to see it. Um, one of the things I realized was that I had found all these wonderful workshops in Lower Manhattan when I did these articles for downtown, but there was no way to see that work unless you went right to the studio, knocked on the door, and first of all, you had to know it was there. Right. There were not <laughs> enough connecting points, and certainly not Connecting points for young artists starting out. So we, I got together a small board and we started figuring out programs that would um, support this mission. And the first one to emerge, uh, well, it took a while to develop it, but it was the New Prince program, which is the series that we're celebrating in um, in present tense, the show yes. that, is, that, that is celebrating our 20th anniversary this fall.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely want to make sure we get a chance to chat about present tense because it's such an Mm -hmm. interesting idea. But Mm -hmm. before we, before we bring it to the present, I guess, um, (laughs) so you, what year then, um, did IPCNY open its doors and how have you kind of seen things evolve? I think over that time. I'm always curious to know how when you take on a project and you get to see it through, over the years, a, a large, ambitious project like this—what sort of change? You know, what what did you expect it was going to do? That you realized it wasn't. What things is it has it surprised you with? What's some? Um, how's the evolution of the idea move on, or has it just? Fulfilled all your expectations?
0: Well, the opening of our gallery in 2000 was very exciting because mm-hmm. it was so well received. We opened the door at, I, well, I opened the door at about 10 of 6. The, the show was opening at 6. And I went out to go to the ladies, I guess. I don't know. I, knew, I went down the hall. And there was a whole pack, probably 50 young artists sitting out there with their backpacks waiting to get in to see the show. And I realized in that moment that we had really managed to to create something that was really needed and really welcomed by the artist community. Um, what I what I guess I didn't expect was how slowly. <laughs> well, Chelsea was just a wasteland then. We uh, we ended up in Chelsea because it was um, it it was the rents were better over there, and we had a very smart person on our board, Leslie Garfield, who figured out that's where the art world was going when it when it moved on from Soho and. Um, but Chelsea was way over on the west side. It was always very windy and cold there compared to where most of us lived in Manhattan, closer to the center of the island. And it was these old warehouses, beautiful high ceilings, but all sorts of street people. And it was right next to the port. I mean, it was near the, 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 the river where the ships came in and everything. And, and it was very dicey. There weren't places to... To eat, really. I mean, Uh it was a very raw neighborhood. And there were a few galleries. Paula Cooper was there. Um, There were a few galleries that had already opened up not a lot, um, Green Naftali. Um, and there were mostly artist studios in this old warehouse building, which was owned by someone called Gloria Naftali, who, um, had the idea of converting the warehouse into artist studios. So there was a lot of life in the building and a great vibe to it. Um, painters studios, and there were, there was one printmaking facility in there, I guess. And, um, or one, yes, there was one person that had a, a press But it was mostly just artist studios, and then there was uh, there was a framer. I mean, it was art related stuff. But but and a few and there were galleries there then in the building upstairs. But the streetscape of Chelsea did not have that many galleries, and all that began to change very quickly. Which of course brought many more people to the neighborhood, which was great. So we moved after a few years down to a a bigger space, looking out at the street, where we could at least have some presence on the street, although Mm. it was on the but it helped a little bit to get more people in so I'm digressing a little bit but that part was hard getting the audience beyond the artist community and beyond the sort of dedicated collectors and beyond the curators to to get in say the press to get in um, to get in the general public and part of our mission big part of our mission was to educate the public about printmaking and enlarge the audience for printmaking so we really felt we needed to have a presence, um, that we needed to develop more of a presence for the gallery. And we did everything we could think of. We did um, three shows uptown that promoted uh, and, and big uh, spaces midtown. One when we opened one of our 10th anniversary, one in our 15th anniversary, we did these big shows midtown and in, in commercial um, office buildings to try to um, expand the audience and drive people down to our gallery. Mm-hmm. That, that became a difficult... Uh, but, you know, it worked. Gradually, you build a real constituency. You just have to keep at it um, and do all kinds of public programming and, and get coverage and, and collaborate with other institutions. That part was hard. Um, but the New Prince Program just thrived. It was amazing. We were getting, I mean, the, the. I was looking at the statistics. I think it was like the 15th, maybe the 15th year, um, one of the New Prince 2015 shows we had, or that year, we had three shows and we had um, over 10,000 submissions for those shows. Yeah. I mean, we were just... It was amazing the the um, attention we were getting by then internationally, and the the value that artists put on being in these exhibitions. So that was that was great. The challenge, of course, was always raising the money to to do any yeah. of any of the above. <laughs> so
1: yeah, yeah, and so as you mentioned in in passing, there you have an exhibition that's this fall. It's called Present Tense, and mm-hmm. it's actually sort of. Revisiting the New Prints in a really interesting way. Uh, can mm-hmm. you speak to the um, the idea behind the exhibition and how it actually is a bit unusual?
0: Well, the idea was to celebrate our twentieth anniversary um, and celebrate the New Prints program, which was. Is our our signature program? I mean, it's what we do that that no one else does. These uh, ongoing series of new prints of jury shows, and um, so we we thought our our founding chairman John Morning said it would be interesting to do something called Twenty Twenty you looked back over twenty years of the New Print Show, but of course that idea got refined and massaged and turned out to be um, a, a hard look, a deep look at the first five years' worth of these shows, which I think was a great idea mm. um, to revisit the the um, content of those shows, and so that's what we did, and 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 to really highlight as that program grew and as we got more international submissions and a wider spread because at the beginning we mailed out submission calls for entry because there was not such a thing as uh, widespread internet at that point right. point. and um so that these 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 um submissions um calls would get sent around a, a college community or be posted on a bulletin board or something but it was nothing like when we were able to do it electronically, which started a few years after we began these shows, um, when you could email it to people and they could submit electronically. That was a huge leap. Um, but we had to wait until we felt that enough artists had computers and had the capacity mm. to submit that way. We didn't want to um, disadvantage anybody. The idea was always to make it as open a, a, a process as possible, no entry fee, um, We paid the return shipping. You know, we wanted to make it really user-friendly for all artists. So we waited until we felt enough of the world was connected electronically (laughs) that... (laughs) that we could do, um, submissions that way. It was a lot easier. And of course it also increased the submissions, um, a lot. Um, so that ship, that was a, that was a change. And that happened during those first five years. I think it happened maybe in year three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to, to do a show that reflected on those first five years and how the prints, um, reflected the, the changing times, um, as a, because there were so many amazing events going on um, during the first five mm-hmm. years of, of um, the century, so it was it was very interesting to see how that was sort of reflected. There was a lot of identity um, issues that that turned up in the work. There was internationalism as more and more artists were working all over the world in printmaking and learned about the print center and sent in submissions, and of course there was 9/11. Mm-hmm um it certainly affected um the, the 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 culture of everybody um in the artist community and everywhere else so it was interesting to see all that come together and we asked um deborah cullen to be a co-curator she had been around the print center very early on she worked for the robert blackburn studio when she was a student um as an intern and and had done a show uh early on for the Print Center. Um, of Puerto Rican prints. And she also curated a show from Robert Blackburn's workshop. So she was connected to the print world in a way that I wasn't and has moved on to to be a curator at El Museo del Barrio. And now she's at the Mellon Foundation. So she had a very broad, we felt she would bring a lot of perspective to this project. And also she's very smart and wrote a beautiful essay, Mm. which I see when the show opens. (laughs) So so that was the thinking behind this show, to, to take a good look at the first five years, and what was going on um, in the world at large, and um, and and do it through not just my viewpoint, but also someone with a broader point of view.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember um, when I was reading the sort of little press release or the little blurb that we got sent about the show, I was really struck by the particular mention of the September 11th attacks, because it's... Um, you know, I I think that a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are in their 20s. And so if they, you know, maybe weren't even necessarily alive during that time, maybe don't even have really clear memories of the kind of before to the after and, you know, how much the culture in the United States shifted, you know, um, quite dramatically, and then how artists responded to that and how you just saw this huge influx of, of politically reactive art um, because of all the other things that were going on, uh, you know, as, as a result of the, of the attack. So it's, it, it was just it really interesting to me as someone who I think I was maybe 16, I think, um, 16 or 17. So, you know, have a very clear memory of, of, you know, turning on the television that day and, and that sense that things will never be the same. But of course, I was on the other side of the country. I was in Washington State. Um, and so I can I can't even imagine the effect it would have had on on New York. I just felt it in, you know, Seattle, which is almost as far away as you can get and still be in the mm-hmm. US. Yeah, right, mm.
0: right. Well, first, everybody just went home.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it,
0: was, it was it was such a shock. And, um, of course, downtown, a lot of Tribeca was, was, I mean, people, the schools closed, everything stopped down there. And that, because that was right in the shadow, basically, mm. of the World Trade Center. But um, everything stopped for a while. And then when we all sort of got ourselves back together again, because you didn't know if there were going to be more attacks, that was part of the right. The- trauma of the whole thing it wasn't over when it was over nobody knew for a couple of days what you know where it had come from or whether the next next to to be hit would be the empire state building or the tunnels or whatever you know people didn't know if we'd be isolated in manhattan so a lot of people tried to leave Mm. um it was and from our gallery we had a, a rooftop Uh, at 526 West 26th Street, and everybody kind of gathered up there, and you could see all the people walking up from Wall Street. It looked like a death march almost, Mm -hmm. you know, walking up the West Side Highway um, to get to the ferries and get to the tunnels and get, you know, somewhere where they could get into the trains where they could get home but I was very worried that the trains, well, a lot of us were that the trains would be the next to go that they would right. on the train station I mean you just didn't know what was going to happen, it was, it was the most unnerving terrible thing and you didn't know if your friends who worked downtown were still alive um, anyway, so everybody just went home and we kind of stayed there for a while yeah. to wait it out and see what would happen next. It was Anyway, but then when the artists, I mean, we have some pieces in the show which, which, which reflect that. I mean, there's one that was made by a collective um, ad hoc artists that uh, Mark Lepson, who's very close to the print center, and um, a, a group of other artists made it. It was called Our Grief is Not a Cry for War. And actually, Deborah talks about that in her essay. Um, and it was a screen print poster, really. And then there were there were some other things that got into the show. I, I mean, i those are the ones I'm of course, remembering um, because I've been looking at them recently. but there was a digital drawing uh, print um, by a j. Bocchino, where he took the New York Times headlines over a period of time. and highlighted them in colors you know the different colors to do with the rock and or whatever it was and that print is in the show it's a gigantic print but mm. it's very interesting that um so there was a lot of a lot of reaction in the artist community obviously they always react sooner than everybody else mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um and then when of course when we finally reopened again there are our usual you know, lots of people flooded in a lot of the artists because in a way IPCNY had become a sort of home away from home for these New York artists. Um, so we had, but, so they came, but the the funding dried up for a while because all mm-hmm. the money was in to social services and international organizations and things. And so it was very difficult for small to nonprofits to survive at that point. And I I really thought we might have to close down because it was so sort of hand to mouth for a while. And then. By some miracle, um, not a miracle. It turned out it was Michael Bloomberg, but he, <laughs> he gave money to the um, Carnegie found, Carnegie uh, Corporation to, uh, which is an educational um, nonprofit to give to small to medium-sized nonprofits mm. in the city. And so we got a grant, and that kept a lot of us going. These individual grants of twenty-five thousand dollars, or thirty-five, or whatever it was, depending on your size, really were like a lifeline for a lot of us. It just kind of kept you going over the hump till life returned a little bit to normal, and people started joining organizations again and sending money, and <laughs> and um, so it, it was that was and buying things. I mean, people just weren't going out, so yeah. there was like no. Yeah, you know, no nothing flowing in uh to the center. Um, no memberships, no purchases, nothing. So um it it was a diff- very difficult time. And but then, you know, everything stabilized again and our, our old our funders <laughs> drifted back one by one and mm. and we were to carry on supporting printmakers and
1: Does it all it all feel similar? Um you know, to be facing the pandemic 20 years later, and, and that kind of sense of, I guess, uncertainty. And, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, most of the people I know who are working in nonprofits at the moment are also kind of reporting similar things about people becoming very cautious with their funding now. And, you know, mm. just feeling a huge sort of shift in the world. Is it 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 all the same
0: well it is and it isn't because the government came through during the pandemic Mm. um their PPP loans and their gifts basically, and a lot of support for, for people individually and for nonprofits. So, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not in the driver's seat at this point, so I didn't have to navigate this the way Judy has, but, um, but I think that, yes, it's a different, it's a different feeling. I mean, it's, it's equally terrifying, but it's different Mm. in that the government has, has, has supported us. Um, And, and also it's, well, it is unknown. In that sense, it is there is the unknown quality in both of these situations. Um, because just like the Delta variant, suddenly we have that. Is there another? Is there another attack coming? But but there was an end to the attack. I mean, th- there was a moment when we all knew that there weren't going to be more planes coming. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have the pandemic quite yet.
1: Yeah, not. There's quite still yet.
0: that uncertainty, but there has been so much more support, and there was very little support after 9-11. I mean, no one knew quite what to do, because everybody was looking outward to try to figure out where this was coming from and what we could do to keep it from happening again. Um, So it was a different kind of threat.
1: One of the other things that really stood out to me in the writing about present tense was this idea of the art world globalizing and that happening you know, within really maybe the first 10 years, and then of course really expanding in the last uh, 10 years of IPCNY, and I loved how uh, perfectly you illustrated that by talking about, you know, basically reaching out to universities and sending things through the mail versus, uh, you know, being able to reach out through online means and then, you know, getting, as you say, 10,000 submissions at one point, at least. So I guess I'm really curious to hear your reflections on, you know, as someone who's an art advocate uh, and a curator how do you kind of make that transition in a way where all of a sudden, I like guess not all of a sudden, it's over a period of years, but that, that really big change between, you know, working kind of locally and within these networks to this almost seemingly infinite expanse of the global art world how did you sort of did you need to shift your thinking or kind of um vary the way that you you went about things to accommodate a very big difference in the way that the art world does business over the last 20 years
0: um yes i mean we wanted to be international and open from the beginning that's why we called ourselves international print center but at the beginning we had we would do uh Three or four, one year, um, uh, two, two new print shows after 9-11 because we didn't have any money. But after that, we were doing three. Basically, we settled on three new print shows a year and two other shows that were counterpoint to new print shows and would provide context for them by showing prints from another period or another culture, um, or focus on a mediums for educational purposes, like we did an etching show. But but basically, we did a lot of international shows, um, because we didn't feel we could, we weren't getting a lot of submissions from abroad. We weren't encouraging them because we paid the return. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we weren't seeking out submissions from other uh, countries so much um, until later on in the, in the, in the history of the center. But um, so we did. Did these these international shows? Um, Deb Cullen, my co-curator, for example, did a show of Puerto Rican prints. That's not really international, but it's um, close. <laughs> we did. We we did did a show of Russian prints called Moscow Graphico. We did a show of Scottish prints. Prints from three uh, Scottish workshops. Um, I'm trying to think of the other ones. Um, We did. Let's see. Well, we did a a whole, I I don't have the list in front of me, but anyway, Mm -hmm. we did 14 or 15 shows of prints from other countries, um, trying to just make sure we had that presence, you know, and that for our audience and our artists, that they would be exposed to work from outside um, the United States based um, printmakers. But then, of course, of course what happened early on and then increasingly happened was a lot of artists from other countries came here to work like we had in in the first five years we had Beatrice Milias who came from Brazil and worked at a printmaking workshop in Pennsylvania um we had um trying to think who else Shazia Sikander came here um um, and I'm just in these first five years. We had a print by Chris O'Feely that was actually that was printed in London, but entered the United States mainstream pretty quickly because it was so good. It was in the Brooklyn I show in Brooklyn, and and we all got interested in him. I'm trying to think of other people, but there were the occasional um, internationally based. Um, artists that came to America to work in these print mm-hmm. shops then of course we began to get work from workshops all over the world um and that that was that's very exciting and I thought for a while maybe we should do one show that was just prints from other countries but then by that time it was it was not a good idea because <laughs> there were so many artists from other countries mm-hmm. working in America it didn't make any sense that was interesting um So that was one change in terms of the – I mean, I think just as the print world grew and more artists were making prints and it became more of a community that we were seeing them. We were seeing them arrive on our doorstep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of my favorite things about being involved in print as opposed to any other media is how international it is because you've got their works on paper, generally speaking – and they're additions, generally speaking. So that means, you know, not only are they easier to ship internationally, but people are more likely to take that risk. You know, um, is that, is it okay? Like I can, I can put this in a, I can flat pack this or put this in the tube and send it around the world and it'll probably get there. Okay. You know, and, and if it does, you know, and if it doesn't, that's not ideal, but like, you know, maybe I have 19 more. So I, you know, it's, it's something like that. And it's just so rewarding and, and network building. And you really feel that international community, you know, through, uh, international opportunities like new prints, through printmaking exchanges, through portfolios, through residencies. It's just, it's an amazing way to see the world sort of through printmaking, I think. And I I know that international exhibitions and initiatives um, really foster that in amazing ways because that's how people can connect with the work in person from our print friends just around the world. It's great. And
0: I love the idea that a print can be in an exhibition and be considered in one context. In one country, in one city, at the same time that it can be in an exhibition, the same print somewhere else mm. on the other side of the world. There's something wonderful about that.
1: Yeah, I've actually, yeah, I've never thought of that before. But you're, you're right. Is that the the same work can exist within such different contexts at the same time and be having these two different lives? That's really wonderful. And in people's collections, also. Mm, yeah. So. I'm hoping that maybe you'd have a few words of wisdom for young printmakers out there who are looking to get noticed by curators. Um And I know that that's, of course, very, very different curator to curator, right? Like they're going to have a different eye, different things that they look for. But if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I'd, I'd love to be in an international show or I'd love to get attention Do you have any kind of, you know, having, uh, you know, done new prints as the project for as long as you have something that maybe you can tell a a young printmaker that might help them?
0: Well, first of all, they shouldn't give up because eventually if they stay with it, eventually some, you know, people will notice. I mean, we had a lot of curators who painted pay attention to our shows. And and I think not only, I mean, not only the shows, the new print shows at the Print Center, but uh, under Judy's leadership and with the expansion of our staff, there's been such a great online presence of IPCNY. And of course, that reaches curators all over the world. Um, So I think that's really important, submitting to um, um, different competitions, but basically having faith. I mean, first of all, that's why people, that's such a part of the printmaking process, having faith in the artist's mind that they'll get to what they want by the end of the process. I mean, I love that commitment to the process, but I think that it's the same kind of commitment they have to have to their work Um, because eventually... gets noticed. If it's if it's good work, it gets picked up eventually. I think the world is so connected now that it's a matter of of keeping on on going. And maybe perhaps working in different shops helps because it introduces them to new people and new who have other connections. Maybe that helps. I'm not sure about that. But I think that if they stick with the printmaking community, which is so good at promoting, there's so many um, so many organizations entities within the community that promote that promote print making work um, in different ways um, that that they'll get their work out there if they just keep making good work mm, yeah <laughs> that's a pretty simplistic answer but I do believe that the cream rises to the top and that <laughs> you know and the, and the curators are, lo- are looking for good work um, they don't have a lot of time as part of the problem and they're not to open every envelope that comes to them, or everything that comes through their email box but um but they're looking for good work, so it's kind of a matter of time before you get their attention
1: for sure, and I think that my time as a as a print curator, I can definitely echo that because. Sometimes the first time you see work submitted to you, because as you say, you don't have a lot of time and you you can't, unfortunately, you can't spend as much time as you'd like sort of longingly gazing into a work and like, you know, giving it all the time it deserves. But, you know, maybe the second or the third time you see this person's work. And if you see it evolve, if you're like, oh, this is actually an interesting take on what they were doing last year, you really do start to work your way into a curator's mind and turn their eye, you know, and I think it's the same way they often tell you, I'm sure you know, is having run nonprofits that, you know, the first time you apply for a grant, don't expect to get it. It might be the second or the third time or even more than that, because as you show up again, the people who are making the decisions start to become familiar to you. So it's, it really is that that consistency, yeah.
0: Yes, I think that to see an artist's work evolve is very impressive. I mean, if somebody sends something, then you see their work again a year later, and, and you see a, 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 an evolution towards something that looks really interesting to you, of course you're going to pay more attention to it than just seeing one one example I think that's absolutely true. And you begin to get a sense of the, of the, of the, of the, where the artist is going with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we had people submit, that's one of the things that's fun for me doing this show um, present tense, because I had looked at the most recent show that IPCNY did online. And I saw there, one of the artists was, that was in our very first show. It's <laughs> so interesting oh. to see that they could, you know, how, how the work is consistent and how it's evolved. And it's just really interesting um, to see that. 20 years later isn't that amazing
1: yeah it's one of the most (laughs) fun things about being a curator just I think involved in the arts in any sort of administrative way is really seeing careers and aesthetics and visions evolve over time Mm -hmm. and it's so rewarding especially when you can see their skill both sort of artistic and technical evolve and see their vision evolve you really feel like you're you're right there along with them in the process in real time sometimes.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. It's very exciting. And, and at IPCNY, we get a lot of this work from very young artists. So, you know, and then they, they stay with us. It comes back again and again as they, as they work with different, in different processes and with different presses and different master printers or on their own. And it's very interesting. It's really exciting to see how it evolves.
1: Yeah.
0: One of the great pleasures for me of being involved in, in printmaking and with IPCNY. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What about any advice for young blossoming print administrators who might want to start a not-for-profit? It sounds like when you went about forming IPCNY, you really did so with a lot of uh, intention and really drew on the knowledge that you had working other places. But I know that a a lot of the kids these days, you know, that's sort of where they'd like to end up, you know, maybe have a community shop or even um, a, a not for profit gallery of some kind. What would you say to, to someone starting out? I would say you have to have a very clear mission and be totally dedicated to it
0: um, and really believe in it and just stay with it. That's really the key. Um, You have to have a passion for your mission and it has to be really clear. Um, That's that's the basic key. I mean, I was I was really I was impossible for years because (laughs) I thought about it all the time. Everything kind of related in my mind to what this thing should be or what it shouldn't be. And I drove everyone mad in my family and my friends are very patient, but you have to just really believe in it. And it has to be, it has to be clear and it has to be something that it has to be providing something to the world that no one else is providing that you can find. Um, There's no point duplicating someone else's efforts. Um, That's the other really key thing. You look for the niche that you want to fill and you have to believe that that niche really needs filling, and then you and 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 you'll be able to do it if you if you set about it that way because people appreciate that if there's a need to be addressed that you're trying to address it, mm-hmm. um, and then you mm-hmm. have to get very good people to work alongside you, and it has to be a variety of skills. It has to sort of. I looked for people to mirror what I thought my staff should be, so I I wanted to have a a lawyer. I wanted to have a um, eventually an architect i wanted to well not an architect but a real estate person i wanted to have a couple of collectors that that really knew the market and knew the different sources of prints that knew them very well because we had an art advisor who again was somebody who whose business it was to to really know the landscape and know um the sources of prints we you need a good writer a really good writer i mean you need um a very good numbers person um, who can help you with the numbers because we were just a staff of one for a while. I say we were a staff of one. Then <laughs> we were a staff of one and a half, and then for a long time we were just two people um, and with a couple of interns. But so we really needed a board that would would um commit to help with these various chores that had to be done that that helped us move along I and mean, we had to have someone to help us with our books cuz we didn't have a an accountant on our staff for yeah. example you know um so so that was key so you have to find, you have to also find very talented, committed people to work with you um, that they're devoted to the cause, you know, and, and will really step up and help and come to, I mean, I had uh, our openings, they would all come to the openings at the beginning and all of that because they were so committed and so excited about what we were doing. So that's the best advice I can give really yeah. is, is to develop. Clear mission and to and to and to learn to communicate it well to really believe in it so that you have can communicate some passion for what you're trying mm-hmm. to do and then you can get other people on board and getting the right other people on board is key also yeah to the leadership and you have to have someone with leadership skills to to help develop the board and lead the board and and then you're you're all right you just have to <laughs> figure out how to raise money <laughs> yeah because <laughs> you know your program and we had a very we had a very clear mission statement to begin with and a very clear um, prospectus sorry, I was looking for the word, that presented our programs. And then then we refined those programs. So by the time we opened, we knew exactly what we were doing. We had all the guidelines for the new prints program in place, how many people should be on the jury, um, how far ahead the prints should be submitted. Everything was was really clear, and for the other shows, we knew exactly what we wanted. Also, so you know that that all has to be worked out ahead of time. I started thinking about it in 1993. We got um, we got our incorporation in 1995, and we didn't open the doors of the gallery until 2000. So that tells you that you have to have patience also to develop to develop the programs to support the mission and to find the the, the resources um, in terms of volunteer people and in terms of um, finances too to make it a reality.
1: Yeah. And I can really see what you're saying about having something that you have a passion for, because it does need to continue to light that fire in you over years and years and years, because you'll need to be able to not just get people, other people excited about it in the first six months, but also five years down the line and 10 years down the line as well. Yeah, that sounds exactly. really significant. It's, it's Is it something that you could talk about all day, every day for the rest of your life? <laughs> <laughs> probably not now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a
0: little harder now. I, I'm not boring everybody to death now with my conversations about <laughs> the print center. Yeah. Um, not, probably not. Although I suppose I could if if you wanted to come over here and sit down, we could talk for another, <laughs>
1: <Excellent>, <laughs> another excellent.
0: couple of days about the print center.
1: <laughs> well, we would we would love to get you to Bangkok and share Thai prints with you. So maybe we can get you to come over this way and we can talk more. Well, if I were still in Judy's seat, I'd
0: be trying to get you to do a show of Thai prints to send to us. But that's not my my brief right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a board member. But, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Thai prints in, in New York.
1: I don't think anyone is, actually. I know that... Um... Uh Deb at uh Chicago Printmakers Collaborative did a show of Thai Prints. And then when I was curating in Seattle, I did a show of Thai Prints. But mm-hmm. I don't think they've come to New York yet. So hmm, I know I know a lot of Thai printmakers who would be thrilled to get a New York show on their C V. So maybe I can put a bug in someone's ear about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Start reaching out to everybody. Yeah. Try to find someone who's a member of the Fine Print Dealers Association. Maybe they'd have a couple of them in their booth, or
1: mm. you know, just
0: somewhere we could all see them. Yeah. Or they do yeah. they do shows online? Can we see them online? IPCNY has wonderful shows online now.
1: Yeah, there's not really a a dedicated print exhibition space. Um, <clears throat> And what's interesting in Thailand is that there's not as much of a culture of small businesses and small institutions having websites. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, most sort of transactions when it comes to small businesses are done through Line, the Line app, which is just sort of like WhatsApp. And it's really Mm -hmm. sort of a surprise. Well, you might even want I don't know, get some nice soap from a local soap maker, you know, down in the the artsy district. They won't have a website, but they'll have a Facebook that says message us on our, you know, on our WhatsApp basically. And then you just, you do a bank transfer through that and they send you, they send you the the soap in the mail. So it's, it's a very different kind of culture in terms of how you get your craft out into the world. Um but the Chiang Mai Art on Paper, the CAP Studio, has probably the best website, and they do really beautiful etchings with just incredible artists. They do a collaborative printmaking model. And um, the the founder, Kirikang Tilo Kwatanotai, he was educated in Sydney, so he has a bit more, I think, of, um, understands the kind of Western mentality about the self-promotion and, you know, getting images out there into the world, so... <laughs> Yeah, there's they they can be seen out there for sure, but it's a lot of work. We didn't see until we we came here in person. And when I first started working and curating Thai prints, I had to come in person, which was definitely no one twisted my arm for a trip to Thailand. But, <laughs> but once I got here, I, I really understood the the extent of it, and the the quality is just really incredible. Um, from what people do with you know like. 19 layer uh, uh, litho plates and you know just the most beautiful rich etchings and um you know silk screens that just have just incredible depth and like painterly quality to them really a lot mm-hmm. of really really nice work, uh, interesting work, political work all happening yeah in Thailand so yeah very,
0: Very interesting I think that's
1: one thing you said
0: though that We hadn't talked about was the idea of getting into a studio and seeing Mm. um, the process. And I think that's that's what really hooks people on printmaking. Once you understand there can be 19 layers (laughs) (laughs) perfectly aligned, perfectly registered that add up to this image that's so beautiful and that's so rich, then you're really, you're you're a print Nick sort of person at
1: that point. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So when I was the director at, at Davidson Galleries in Seattle, I did a lot of face-to-face interfacing with people who just walked in off the street and they, you know, you can tell they, they walk around and they look at what's on the walls and their brows kind of furrow and they come over to you and eventually ask a question like, are these drawings? Are these photographs? You know, they're, they're not sure... And so a few times I would explain a process, particularly if it was something like, let's say a reduction woodcut. And you could tell that they understood what I was saying, but they just didn't think that that was possible, <laughs> you know? Right. Like they understood, right. but maybe they thought they didn't understand because what I was describing sounded insane to them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, how could someone do that? <laughs> Well, yes,
0: they have to have it explained to them several times, and to see it is the best. That's the uh, best. That's what we did yeah. early on when we were starting to develop a constituency for the print center. We took them to workshops and it was amazing i mean the silk screen workshops or somewhere um etching what whoever we could find that would let us arrive with 20 people and that was just the best way to get people interested in printmaking to actually see an image emerge you know from all these layers of glassine or whatever it was it was great
1: i'm i'm hopeful that instagram is going to and maybe even tiktok although i don't really understand a thing about it um will really help drum up a lot of that interest again, because you can see the magic happening in video now without going into the studio. And I feel like it can really um, bridge that gap a bit for people who are interested, who aren't necessarily living somewhere that has a studio you still can see the magic of the reveal. You still can see a process video and really understand the incredible way that printmakers have to think in layers and think in you know 12 steps ahead and plan it out and how are the colors going to interact and, and all of that, yeah.
0: And believe in the process, believe that they're going to end up with what they want. Um, Absolutely. I think, well, we have at IPCNY now a very simple press, but I think even that helps people to understand, to see an artist working and see the proofs and things. It helps people to understand in a pretty simplistic way because it's not a complicated, it's not a big fancy press. It's very simple. But even that first step is very helpful to people, I think, mm. in understanding um, and, and getting them interested in the process and in, in a print versus a drawing. Or, yes, yeah.
1: and I think simple can definitely be good. You know, I would mm. always... Feel much more relieved when someone would ask me how a relief print was done than how a mezzotint was done. Exactly. You know, I always want to be like, can, let's let's can we start with something simpler? You know, like let's just get the basics done first. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think particularly when you're when you're dealing with just like that no exposure thus far, simple is good. Like keeping it simple <laughs> and then kind of building on that is for sure the way to go. Yes, yeah. lower them in. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, we've reached our hour recording mark. So, I think um I'll just I'll make sure that I'll I'll put links in the show notes to to IPCNY out there digitally and to the uh present tense exhibition um should it be up when we release and other than that and thank you so much for letting me borrow an hour of your morning and and help sharing your story and sharing the the passion of print um with the world and yeah well
0: thank you miranda it's been great fun talking to you
1: yeah um, you too
0: your experience in thailand um and I will definitely look at Cap Studio.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll send a link through for you. Um, it's really, really beautiful work that they're doing and just great, passionate people, you know, like you find in printmaking throughout the world.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a great world. So thank it really you. Is.
1: Thank you so much, Anne. We will be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Great. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Catherine Jones, a multidisciplinary printmaker working in Brixton. We'll talk about the collagraph process, perceived and actual safety, international and domestic threats, and a crystal palace. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.